where we go downstairs, we have bagels, we have coffee, uh, and it's a time for us to get to know one another. Uh, and so please join us for that. Again, my name is Prentice. I'm uh, the lead pastor here at Bethany West Seattle. And we're so glad that you are here on this beautiful Sunday morning. Uh, and as we continue, today we're continuing our sermon series on the Song of Solomon. Uh, and today we're talking about chapter three. And, and just to kind of give you a refresher that the first week was an overview of what Song of Solomon is about. It's about intimacy it's about relationships. It's about loving one another. Uh, yes, it's in the context of marriage, uh, but also intimacy within our friends and our family, and, and really about our relationship with God as well. And, and we, uh, we said all of Bethany, uh, through our studies, we're taking a different approach in looking at Song of Solomon, that instead of two characters, uh, the king and the woman, we're saying that we understand this story really about three characters. It's about the king, it's about the woman, but also another man who really is the affection of this woman's love. That's where the love is in between, and the king is on the side in power and coercion and inviting her to be a part of his harem. So that's kind of the direction that we're going to. Uh, and if you need a refresher on that, I invite you to listen to the sermons online. And the week after that, we talked about worthiness. That the first place for us to start in being in relationship, in loving one another, to, to love and to receive love, begins with understanding that we are actually worthy of it. And God says that we are. And that's the starting place. And last week, we talked about through our affirmation of worthiness in the work and the life and the death that Jesus Christ has upon us, that through that we are called to affirm others. And, and today, the sermon, I, I want to call it Watering Our Lawn. It's called Watering Our Lawn, and I'll, and I'll go into that uh, and, and tell you why I call that after I pray. God, thank you so much that we get a chance to learn from you and to be connected so deeply with you as you care about all the details of our lives, including the way we, we relate to one another. And so be with us as we, as we learn more about that. In your name we pray, amen. So I, I think uh, a lot of us have heard this saying, uh, or we've said it ourselves at some point in our lives, is uh, that the grass is greener on the other side. We've all heard it said to us, we all said it before, the grass is greener on the other side. And what this is actually suggesting, this little saying, what it's actually suggesting is that if only we, myself, you, we were all in a different circumstance, a different position, a different scenario, a different life, then life would be so much better. If only I was that person, or only if I was doing that, or only if I wasn't in the position I'm in now, then life would be so much better. The grass is always greener on the other side. I mean, we've all said it, we've all thought about it, and we think about this, and Song of Solomon chapter 3 is about us having this idea that even when it comes to relationships, whether you're married, whether you're single, whether you're longing, whether uh, you're divorced, whatever it is, we stand in a position sometimes, and whether you say it out loud or not, we think, we say, man, only if I was with that person, or only if I was doing that, or only if that person I'm with was different, then life would be better. Grass is greener on the other side. We've all thought about it in one context or another. 
And a silly illustration was this really dumb movie that I saw several years ago. And it was called The Change-Up. Okay, if you've never heard of it, that's totally fine. It was horrible. It's one of those really silly, dumb comedies with Jason Bateman and Ryan Reynolds. And some of you ladies' eyes kind of lit up. Yes, uh, with Ryan Reynolds. And it's a story about these two men where Jason Bateman's character uh, was married, had kids, lived in the suburbs, uh, and that's the kind of life he lived. He went to work. He was a lawyer uh, in that day over and over again. And, and then there was a character that Ryan Reynolds played where he was single. He had all the ladies. Uh, he had a great job. He lived in the city. He was popular. Uh, and the whole bulk of that movie is this character and this character saying, I wish I lived that other person's life. And then in a silly way, they went to a fountain, and then their wish actually came true. The, the, the wish actually came true, saying that they actually ended up switching lives. So throughout the movie, it was about them saying, man, the grass is greener on the other side. I wish I was married. I wish I had two kids. I wish I lived in the suburbs instead of this Terrible life with all the ladies, you know, being so popular, being so attractive to the ladies. Man, I wish I was there. And then, of course, the other person saying, oh, man, instead of being married and having kids and just going, just doing this grind of work, I wish I was that guy. That wish actually came true. Uh, and, uh, and spoiler alert, by the end of the movie, uh, they realized that they were actually happy right where they were in their own lives. See, they both believed to themselves that the grass was greener on the other side. And sometimes that's us. And maybe that's you right now sitting right where you're at. We have a sense of discontentment. This sense of, man, I wish it was a different way. Or, or really, I wish that person would be different. And the way that the grass is greener on the other side, for us, how that plays out is typically, it starts with the words, if only, right? If only, we've said this before, if only I was married, then life would be better. If only I, I was married to somebody else, life would be better. If only I was single, then I can do all the things I really want to do. If only I was in a relationship, if only my husband or uh, would be like that guy, if, if my wife would be like that person, if only, whatever it is. And really this applies to all aspects of our lives when it comes to vocation, whether it comes to, again, relationships, whether it comes to friendships or family. I know that a lot of us, we come from a rough family system, uh, and, and I'm familiar with that. And, and we tell ourselves, if only I was over there. But it's so real when it comes to our own relationships. But, but I would suggest to you today, yes, we have these feelings. If uh, it would be better, the grass is greener on the other side. But what if, what if the grass isn't actually greener on the other side? And oftentimes it's not. What if the real problem is that we need to water the side that we're on now. Yes, the grass might be greener on the other side, and the side that you're on might be dead, wilted, dry. 
And so maybe instead of crossing over to the other side, there's something about watering and cultivating and taking care of the grass, the lawn that you are on right now, exactly where God has you. See, in chapter 3 of Song of Solomon, and, and I didn't read it at the beginning like I normally do, because we're going to go through the chapter, I'm going to read it uh, as, I, as, as we go along. Uh, Song, Song of Solomon, chapter 3, deals essentially uh, with, with two stories. So Song of Solomon, again, as a reminder, is a collection of poems. Uh, whether it's meant to be literal or not, scholars all agree and disagree all about that, but the point they will all agree on. And the point today in this story of chapter 3 is that there's two poems, and essentially in our uh, intended purposes, there's two lawns that are talked about. And we're going to look at both of them. And the first starts in chapter 3, verse 1 through 4, and I'll just read this out loud for you. Uh, And here's what the woman says. This is a woman, the woman, and people call this a dream. She says, upon my bed at night I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. And then she says, I will rise now and go about the city in the streets and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. The sentinels found me. And as they went about in the city, I asked, have you seen whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I passed them. Uh, and as soon as I passed him, when I found him whom my soul loved, I held him and would not let go until I brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her that conceived me. See, what we see in chapter uh, 3, verse 1 through 4, is this woman, she wakes up in the middle of the night, or she's having a dream, whatever the case is, she's, wa- she, she's waking up in this anxiety, almost in this panic, saying, where is my lover? Where is this person that I love? I must go find him. And, and not only is she in, in search of him, but she gets up and says, I will go into the city. And, and typically the city they refer to as Jerusalem. I will go into the squares, and I will look for my lover. I will seek him. And it's this Hebrew word that we have to understand, that this idea of seek, the Hebrew word is abaska. This Hebrew word abaska, seek, means to actively move, to actively go, to actively do something about what you are searching for and who you are searching for. And so the point is this, that this woman had to get up, and she pursued her lover. Even to the point of going into the the town, the squares, Jerusalem, because uh, at that time it would have been so dangerous for a woman by herself in the middle of the night to go into the city of Jerusalem. She could have been vulnerable to assault. She could have been harassed by the citizens. She could have been interrogated by the guards, because actually it says she met up with the sentinels, the, the town guards. And she says, as soon as I passed the town guards, I finally, finally found him. And it says, as soon as I found him, I mean, you can kind of imagine the anxiety and the panic that she had. She said, as soon as I found him, the one that my soul loves, I held him. And I did not let go until we went to my mother's house. And we'll talk about how weird that is in a moment. 
She did whatever it took to find her lover. The shepherd boy is, is what we would call him. Nothing extravagant, nothing special in the world's eyes, nothing that would get people's attention. But it was clear that that was who her soul loved. That was the object, the person of her pursuit. In the second poem, uh, really, we're going to start from chapter 3, verse 6 through 10. And it says this. Uh, this is a story. Now, the first one was about the woman searching for a man, her lover man. And, and then now this is a story of the king. What is that coming up from the wilderness like a column of smoke perfumed with myrrh and frankincense with all the fragrant powders of the merchant look it is a litter or I would say this is the NRSV or it's the carriage it's the carriage of Solomon around it are 60 mighty men of the mighty men of Israel all equipped with swords uh, and expert in war each each with this with his sword at his high, at his thigh because of alarms by night, King Solomon made himself a palanquin from the wood of Lebanon. Again, that carriage. Uh, from the wood of Lebanon, he made its post of silver, its, its back of gold, its seat of purple. Its interior was inlaid with love. It says, daughters of Jerusalem, come out. Look, O daughters of Zion, at King Solomon, at the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. So we see a contrast uh, of two lives, of two poems, of two lawns. Really, one is a very humble lawn, the shepherd boy, and it's the one that she pursued. Now, in the midst of that pursuit, in the midst of that relationship, we see all throughout the chapters between the man and the woman, uh, on the side, there's this king also pursuing the woman, not out of love, not, at, not for intimacy, not for genuine care, but so that she would be part of his harem. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And, and we can notice a, a huge difference in this second poem, the second lawn, uh, the other side of the fence, that uh, there's a lot of poetic languages here that describes how majestic and powerful this king, King Solomon, was. And we don't have time to go through all of them, but I'll just point out a few. It says, it says that he was covered in the fragrance uh, of frankincense and myrrh. See, frankincense and myrrh was perfume that was commonly used to, to only anoint the king and, and the priest. It was something of the deity something that was presented to holiness. And that's what King Solomon was. And it talks about his carriage. It was a solo carriage. You can imagine kind of a box. Uh, and it's not just ancient Near Eastern uh, uh, cultures that do this. All countries in Asia and Africa, they've done this, where there's like this box where the king or royalty would sit by himself and his mighty men on each corner would have a handle, lift the handle up, essentially lift the king up, and that's how he would commute. That was his personal driver, his personal taxi service. That's the way he got around the town because it signified, again, royalty and kingship. And then it talks about throughout chapter 3, uh, the latter portion was about his armed men. 
essentially his, his entourage, the people that had swords that signified power, the people that would protect Solomon or the king uh, in, in all circumstances, that they would give their lives to this man. Do we see two separate poems would deeply contrast it with one another. The first is about love. It's about romance. It's about feeling of safety and security, which is expressed physically and intimately at the mother's house. We won't go too much into that, but uh, being taken to the mother's home uh, and uh, into her chamber for physical intimacy, that, that signifies safety and security. And so there's that on one end. And on the second end, we see the story uh, of power, Again, uh, of on the looks of majestic crowns and jewels uh, and royalty and status and all those things. But we see that at the end of the day, the woman goes to the man, the shepherd boy, holds on tight and says, I'll never let go, essentially. He says, you are the one that I choose. She clearly and definitely and actively chooses this lowly shepherd boy, her true love, her first love in this book. And she realized that although she saw what was happening with the king and how he came in and how he presented himself and all the soldiers and all the warriors next to him, she didn't get tempted or enticed with this idea that the grass is actually greener on the other side. Yes, they were both pursuing her. Yes, they both wanted her affection. And she was stuck in essentially this love triangle. Who do I choose? And she says, I choose this shepherd boy over this person, this king. Yes, to everybody else, to the women of Jerusalem, this is the one that will bring you status, will bring you power, will bring you of all the lavishes of life. Yes, the grass is greener on the other side. And she says, no. I'm going to actively pursue my love, my shepherd boy. I'm going to essentially water my side of the fence. I'm going to cultivate who I am with. And I will not be tempted with the grass on the other side. So what we see throughout this story uh, is three different movements that we'll talk about that we'll continue to to unpack even throughout the chapters. Uh, Is that the first move, and this is important for all of us, is that there was a move that we see from scarcity to gratitude. There was a move from scarcity to gratitude. Again, in verse 4, I love it. It just says this woman found her her lover and held him so tightly. I remember uh, a while back when I was just a kid, and actually, I'll never forget this. Uh, I went to the mall. I remember uh, the Alderwood Mall uh, in in my neighborhood back then. Uh, And it was a really busy time of season. And and I remember my personality, if you talk to my mom, I I was a handful. I know you guys would be very shocked if you knew me. Uh, but I was a handful growing up, and, and I was very curious, and I explored everyone. I would go around, I would go here, I would go there, just out of my own curiosity. And, and I remember when I went to the mall with my mom one day, I, kind of, I ran away. And, and I remember, I wasn't that scared, though. I remember just kind of checking things out. And, and actually, I actually remember hearing my name in the intercom, because my mom had went to the, the, the 
info booth uh, and said, Prentice, come to the info booth. I'm like, I, I don't know what that means. And I was just wandering around, and I just remember not being a big deal. And then several minutes later, I saw my mom. I'm like, great, time to go home. And my mom was crying, and she ran over to me, and she held me tightly. And she held me so tight, and she says, basically, I'm not going to let you go. You know, she didn't come to me and said, you idiot, where did you go? She didn't punish me. She didn't say, you know, she didn't reprimand me at that time. She said, oh my gosh, I love you. And she held me so tight. And, 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 and a lot of you guys have children, and maybe you've had that experience before. And, and ultimately, what happens is this first sense of gratitude. Oh my gosh, you're okay. Oh my gosh, you are here. I didn't lose you. The worst didn't happen to you. And my mom, she, uh, she, she's a very anxious person. And I'm sure her mind wandered everywhere. And the only thing she thought about when she was grabbing me was a sense of gratitude. She was thankful that I was okay. She was thankful for me. There's this deep, deep, profound sense of gratitude. Now, I'll tell you why I'm talking about that. It's because a lot of us, instead of gratitude, we get inundated and overwhelmed with this idea of scarcity. And scarcity is simply defined as the insufficient amount of. And you fill in the blank. Scarcity means it's the insufficient amount of. And we're constantly trapped in this desire for just a little bit more. Instead of being thankful, instead of holding on tightly to the things and the people that we love, the people that God has brought into our lives, whether it's your spouse, whether it's your friends or your family or, your, or whoever it is, instead of holding on so tightly, saying, I won't let you go, out of gratitude and love, we say, oh my goodness, only if there was a little bit more. Only if there was a little bit more. We run out of this mindset of scarcity. And the problem is, oftentimes in life, again, yes, this is about relationship. And it's in the context of love and intimacy. But this applies to all aspects of our lives. Our finances, our material possessions, our home, our neighborhood, our career. Only if I had that one little promotion. Only if I had just a little bit more in my bank account. Just a little bit more. Life would be better. Scarcity. And the problem with that idea further is that we are inundated and we are trapped in the sense of, I need a little bit more. And the problem is sometimes, and a lot of times, we actually do get a little bit more. And I say that's a problem because once you get that little bit more, what happens? Then you say, okay, well, that's great. But I just need a little bit more, then I'll be happy. Well, the problem is, if you work hard enough at things and for money and all these things, you might actually get it. And it's this vicious cycle that goes over and over and over and over again that leaves us completely unsatisfied. See, whenever we run from this idea of scarcity and not gratitude, instead of, not, instead of being thankful for the people and the things in our lives, we say, oh man, only if things were just a little bit different, then life would be better. The problem with that is it's a vicious cycle that leads us to dissatisfaction and even resentment, not only for yourself, but the person that you're with. And again, maybe if you're married, 
it's wishing that your wife or husband would just change just a little bit about themselves. Or, or maybe if you're single, man, I wish I wasn't single. I was just a little bit different. What if I was dating somebody? Or if you're dating somebody, uh, you have all these expectations, and the person doesn't meet your expectations. You're like, oh, man, I wish that person would change just a little bit. See, scarcity is a problem. Scarcity becomes unhealthy. And scarcity can be absolutely devastating. That need just for a little bit more, just a little change, just something better, just something different. It's devastating because it can lead to infidelity, thinking you can find it elsewhere. It's devastating because it can lead to settling, to be in a relationship, just to be in the sake of a relationship for someone that's less than God's best for you. It's devastating because you walk around and your mind is always constantly wandering and wondering It's devastating because, again, just leads to constant unhappiness and dissatisfaction. And scarcity oftentimes leads to depression. And I say that the antidote for scarcity is gratitude. Is gratitude. Not be thinking about the woes in your life, but thinking about the blessings. I think Philippians chapter 4, when Paul talks about his life, he says, I know what it means to be thankful. He says, I've had plenty. I've had it all before in my life. I've had nothing. In fact, I've been in prison, stripped away of everything that I've had. And in all of life's circumstances, no matter what, I've learned one secret. And the secret is this, is to be happy. And not just happy as in being in a good mood, but to be joyful. Joy that God brings because he identified the important things in his life the blessings that God has brought him, the people that God has brought him, especially while he was in prison. See, scarcity gives birth to fear. That's what, that's what scarcity is driven out of. I need more because this isn't enough. Scarcity gives birth to fear and gratitude gives birth to joy. What are you grateful for? I know you can give me a list of woes. Oh, man, I wish life was just different in this way, in that way. I wish my spouse, my girlfriend, my boyfriend, my husband, my wife, man, I wish they were different. It's driven by fear. And sometimes, uh, if you're anything like me, maybe it's writing it down. Maybe it's making a list. I mean, that's a, something practical that we can all do. I, I encourage you. I invite you every morning, once a week, whatever it is, make a list. What am I grateful for? What do I need to give gratitude to? No matter what season of life I'm in, what is it? What is it? That one little thing that I can actually be grateful for. And I bet you that as we recognize that, your day will change. You'll be operating not from a place of fear, but from a place of joy. Secondly, uh, we, we move from scarcity to, gr to gratitude. Uh, it's important that we move from comparison to being fully present. We've got to move from being uh, in the state of comparing ourselves with others to be fully present 
with where and who we are with now. So being so connected, right, a lot of us are very connected, whether it's through technology, whether it's through social media, whether it's whatever it is, we see what the other person has. And we we begin to move from uh, not this complaint of what I don't have, that's the first, that's scarcity, it's this idea of, oh my gosh, here's the things that I don't have. And here's the things that I want to make life better. We move from that actually to a little bit more of a dangerous place. We move from that into a place that says, it's not about what I don't have. It's about what that person has. Now, now it's a little bit more personal. Now it's a little bit different. Because now it's, man, I want your life. I want your life. And it's easy for us, it's easier actually now more than ever to fall into this comparison trap because, again, of social media, right? And I'm not blaming technology for, for, all, for all the bad stuff happening in the world, but isn't it true that all you see is happiness? Every time you open up an app or whatever it is, all you see is delicious food. Like, you can't be eating that good stuff every single day of your life. It's impossible. And so with that said, it's easy for us to say, oh, man, well, that person has it better than I do. Oh, man, I wish I had that person's life. I wish my spouse would be like that person's spouse. I wish my girlfriend boyfriend would be like that person's boyfriend girlfriend. Oh, man, I'm single. Man, I wish I was dating someone like that person. They're all cuddled up, taking pictures, taking selfies together, eat, drinking out of the same straw. Man, I want that. See, at worst, this envy turns into idolatry. And at best, and at best, comparison leads to victimization, self-victimization. The feeling that everybody has it better than we do. And that you try your best and it doesn't happen. What, how can I be so terrible that I can't get the blessing that that person has? At worst, it's idolatry. At best, it's this victimization attitude. And again, if our pursuit is joy, comparison robs you of that. Comparison robs you of joy. It actually hinders you from being fully who you are because we're so busy about who that person is and what that person has. Galatians chapter 6, verse 4 says it so well. It says, pay careful attention to your own work, for then you will get the satisfaction of a job well done. Get the satisfaction of a job well done, a life well lived. Just pay attention to your own work. And you don't need to compare yourself to anyone else, for we are each responsible for our own conduct. Man, that was Paul writing. I mean, he understood boundaries better than any of us here, here in the first century. You know what he says? Essentially, if this was my own translation, my translation would be saying, stay in your own lane. That's exactly what Paul is saying. Stay in your own lane, because as you are in your own lane, that is when you're fully present with where God has you. And we're not busy being distracted. That person, this person. I'm staying in my lane. Right where God has me and who God has me with. 
whether it's your spouse or your friend or a family member. Because see, comparison can lead, again, can lead to resentment, horrible resentment. Not just with yourself, not just with God, but really resentment to who you're with. It's a dangerous and poisonous place to be. And it actually dishonors, and I'll just say this, it actually dishonors and disrespects the person that you are with. Whether, again, whether spouse, friend, partner. So we must move from comparison to be fully present and to ask the question, yes, what are we grateful for? Make a list of that gratitude. Make a gratitude list. And then saying, how do I become more present? How do I become fully there with my whole self, exactly where God has me, not being distracted by other people's lives? How do I stay in my own lane that honors God and honors the person that I'm with or the people that I'm with? And, and lastly, we must, move, <laughs> we must move from always moving. We must move away from always moving and be, wait for it, and be still. I mean, even that five seconds of stillness was awkward, wasn't it? Because we, in a hyper-mobile context, hate being still. We hate waiting. We don't have patience for it. And I, and I love, even throughout this whole book, but especially in chapter three in her verses, uh, she does not budge. Yes, there's this temptation, come to me. And we'll see in chapter four and five, come to me, come to the king. Look how lavish your life would be. And I can just imagine, I don't actually know how it played out, but she's just holding him tight while being tempted and says, nope, I'm right here. This is where my life is. This is who I'm with. Grass isn't actually greener on the other side. And I love in verse 11, it says, come out to see, she says to the, all the other women, come out to see the king, Solomon, young woman of Jerusalem. He wears a crown, his mother, he wears a crown that his mother gave him on his wedding day, his most joyous day. And most commentators on all scholars would translate this as actually sarcasm and, and mockery of the king. Hey, everybody, hey, look at the king. He's got a bright crown. He comes in a carriage, awesome, good for you. But as for me, I'm going to hold on to my lover tightly, and I will not let go. See, we live in a hypermobile culture where we fall into the myth of quick fixes and nice and shiny, bright things, don't we? Newer is always better, we say. Quicker is always better. Instant is better. It's what sells. We pay more for delivery because we refuse to wait three days. We refuse uh, to wait for our delivery. Heaven forbid that we had a full week, so we pay more because we can't wait. There's, when it comes to relationships, there's, there's dating apps because we don't want to wait. One swipe, left or right, can make a decision on the person. And, and I think uh, the most sinful byproduct of our hyper-mobile culture of not being able to say still is instant coffee. That is the biggest sin ever invented. Why? Because we can't wait. We need things instantly. We want the new thing. 
I remember I waited in line for a, long, a few years ago for the iPhone 6 because I needed the newer iPhone 6. And I remember watching this Conan where the new iPhone 7 came out. And he was going around town uh, kind of tricking people. He says, hey, are you excited for the new iPhone 7? It hasn't come out yet, but it will. And the people would say, yes, yes, I'm so excited. I need it. And then as a trick, he would give the old phone, uh, the iPhone 6 uh, as, as kind of a prank and say, hey, this is new iPhone 7. Tell me what you think. We're doing a kind of a product testing. And, and they would look at it, and it's the same phone that they have in their pocket, the iPhone 6, and they would say, oh, my gosh, I need this. It's quicker. It's newer. It's better than, oh, my gosh, I cannot wait. I need this. And obviously, it was the same phone. Nothing changed. And for a lot of us, we live in that mindset. We always need the newest, the brightest, and the coolest, and the quickest thing now. But that's not going to bring you fulfillment. That's not going to be any different. Because the problem is not that. Oftentimes, we think the problem is that, and it's that, and it's that. But actually, the problem is this. It's what's inside of us that follows us. Now, I'll end with this. Quick story, when I lived in L.A., I was a chaplain, a volunteer chaplain at a, uh, at a, at a prison, at a, actually a jail, and most of these criminals were waiting to either waiting for trial or waiting to be shipped off to the penitentiary or the prison. And I remember meeting this man, uh, a young man. He said, I, used, I come from Michigan. I'm not, L.A. is not my hometown. I, I come from Michigan. I was born and raised there. But when I was a teenager, I used to get into a lot of trouble. I would be in gangs, I would get into drugs, I would get into violence, whatever it is. And my mom said, I'm very sick of you getting into trouble. I'm going to ship you off to live with your grandparents in Los Angeles. I'm going to move you from Michigan to Los Angeles. So that way, uh, you won't get in trouble anymore. You'll go to college, you'll make all the right choices, bada bing, bada boom. All right, see you later. And you end up in Los Angeles. And a couple things that are fascinating. First of all, if you ever want somebody, your son or your daughter, to make better choices, you don't move to L.A., okay? Trust me, I live there. That's not where you go to make better choices. And secondly, they missed the, they missed the entire point. See, he got into, he found another gang. He got into more drugs. He got into violence. And now he's in jail for a very, very long time. See, the problem Actually, it wasn't that, and it wasn't that, it wasn't that, it was here. So we all have this, the first sign of suffering, the first sign of conflict, the first sign of bad news, the first sign of an argument. See ya, I'm going to that, I'm going to the king. Shinier, brighter, better, newer, that's where I'm going. And sometimes you make that choice and you go. And you realize, actually, the problem wasn't here. It follows you. Because there's an internal work that needs to be done. See, we're in a, we, we live in a culture that's hypermobile, and we don't like struggle. We don't like pain. We don't like challenges. And so we go here, we go there, we go here. And even when it comes to our relationships, I love what Viktor Frankl says, one of his quotes from Man Searching for Meaning. He says, suffering ceases to be suffering at the moment it finds its meaning. Suffering is no longer suffering when you add purpose to it. 
So maybe instead of saying, suffering, I don't like you, I'm going to run away to the next person or to the next relationship or whatever it is, say, God, what, what do you have here for me? What if we stayed uncomfortable? What if we endured through the process? I bet something would change. I'm going to invite the worship team back up as we, as we go into a time of response. When it comes to relationships, I want us to be thinking about that. Do we operate from a place of scarcity? Do we have trouble comparing ourselves to others? Are we constantly on the run? And Song of Solomon, chapter 3, is actually a picture of relationship, but it's actually a picture of Jesus, Jesus' love for the church, for us. And Jesus models what it looks like to be in hot pursuit of us. And he proved it through his death and his resurrection and his Holy Spirit that is with us today and right now. And so maybe this is a time where we want to experience Christ's love. I just want to tell you right now that you are deeply and profoundly loved by Jesus. The cross is evident for that. And this is, if this is your first, if you don't know what that means, if, if you're curious about that, please let me know. I'd love to hang out with you. I'd love to tell you more about that. Or maybe today is your first time and you're saying, you know what, uh, I just came here. I don't know how I got here, but I want to try Jesus for the first time. If that's you, please mark that on your welcome card. I would love to follow up with you. Because Jesus is pursuing you. Just like Song of Solomon chapter 3. And may Jesus' love for his church be evidence, be an example of the way that we love others. Jesus doesn't say, oh man, you messed up. I'm going to the next person. Even in calling, sometimes I go to Jesus and say, Jesus, how have you called me to be a pastor? Because I'm, uh, I'm so conditioned with the scarcity where I think Jesus says, oh, well, you stink. You messed up. See you later. I'm going to call somebody else, someone that's better, someone that's a better speaker, someone that preaches shorter. No, Jesus says, I'm going to love you because you are who I've chosen. You are the one I love, and I will not be distracted. I'll even leave the 99 to pursue you, the one. That's what it looks like for us to love not only who we're with, but where we're at. Single? Married? Anything in between? That's where God has you. Be fully present and count your blessings and not your woes. Jesus loves you so much. God, we thank you and respond to you in worship. We thank you for your love. We thank you that we can see your love and the way you pursue us and use that as a model in where in which we love others whether it's romantically, whether it's by friendship, whether it's family, whatever it is, help us to see your love. And because you have loved us first, we can love others through that. We thank you for your cross that says I love you. In your name we pray, amen.